Welcome to Startup Cornell, a podcast exploring the bold entrepreneurial ideas coming from our students, faculty, staff, and young alumni. I'm Kathy Havis, your host, and today we're going to talk with J.P. Pollock, the co-founder and chief architect of the Commons Project Foundation, a senior researcher in residence at Cornell Tech, and an assistant professor of clinical epidemiology at Weill Cornell Medical College. We are excited to hear the story of how he created multiple companies and organizations and what inspires him as an entrepreneur and as a researcher. To find out more about entrepreneurship at Cornell and see the show notes from this episode, visit eship.cornell.edu. So welcome, JP. We're so glad you could be with us today. Thanks, Kathy. It's great to be here. Great. I know that you've been involved in so many projects, but I think the one that I'd like to talk about in the start would be the Commons Project and the vaccination efforts that you're doing there. So can you give us just a short elevator pitch about that project and what you're focused on right now? Yeah, absolutely. So the Commons Project Foundation is a nonprofit 501c3 public trust, we call ourselves. And the company was really founded uh, on the premise that there are certain kinds of digital tools uh, for people, uh, whether they be infrastructure type tools or apps and services uh, that maybe aren't best suited to be operated by normal startups or by big for-profit corporations, and at least in this part of the world, uh, not by our federal governments uh, either. And you know, these types of things fall into lots of categories, but the place that we started is where I come from, which is uh, health and health data. And so you know, the first project of the Commons Project is an app called Common Health, uh, which is basically the Android equivalent to what Apple has done with health and health records. So letting people get control of their health information, store it on their device, and then share it uh, with the people, services, doctors, other apps uh, that they trust. Uh, this work, as the pandemic ensued, sort of naturally transitioned to work in helping people get access to COVID test results, and now importantly, their uh, vaccination record. And we'll have lots of different use cases for that that we can get into, but at a high level, that's what we're working on. How can we give people tools to get access to their data, help them control it, and use it in ways that are empowering for them, uh, rather than just empowering for the corporations or, or governments that uh, originally control those data? Can you talk a little bit about some of the possible applications? Are there already governments contacting you to determine whether or not this could be something that could become a universal way for people to show their vaccine cards or things like that? Yeah, absolutely. So this has been a great success, and the success has come much faster than I think a lot of us expected. The pandemic timeline has changed the way that we build technology and the way that standards like this proliferate and get deployed. Uh, so we really started this work, you know, sort of last summer, uh, and it was focused on test results. And then around the, you know, sort of mid to late fall, when we started hearing rumblings that the vaccines were going to get emergency use authorization by end of year, we realized that this technology was going to be really important for people to be able to prove that they were vaccinated. And so we formed a, a coalition, a project called the Vaccine Credential Initiative. Uh, we founded that uh, along with other collaborators like the MITRE Corporation, Apple, Microsoft, the Mayo Clinic, and Cigna, and a couple of others. And with a bunch of support from you know, the big electronic medical record vendors, from lots of different health systems, from several of the retail pharmacy chains, we set to really try and, and solve the problem of how could we give a single format of QR code or a piece of health data that people could use in lots of different circumstances. So you know, here in the US, our healthcare system is really fragmented. As you may know, our government decided that they were going to firmly stay out of the vaccine credential or vaccine passport business. 
So that really left it up to the private sector to solve this problem. You know, we're in a position where there are 50 different states that have immunization registries, uh, some of which uh, do have technical capabilities to do this sort of thing, and many of which don't, and certainly some of which do not have the political motivation to issue their constituents uh, a vaccine credential at, at this time. So, you know, the idea was we're not going to have a single federal credential. Can we at least all agree on one single format and get all of these different players who are issuing vaccines uh, or who have vaccine registries to give people the same kind of credential? And we've gotten there. At this point, we have on board some 800 uh, institutions participating in VCI. Uh, we have all of the major pharmacies uh, are issuing these vaccine records to people. I guess all except for Walgreens, which will be doing so very soon. Uh, but at these pharmacies, you can download their mobile applications or go to their website and find your vaccine record and get access to your QR code. The electronic medical record platform vendors, Epic and Cerner and Athena Health, uh, are doing this as well. And so if you were vaccinated by your healthcare provider, or in many cases, even if you weren't, you can log into uh, your online chart and get access to your QR code that way. And then uh, most importantly, and this is increasing as we speak, uh, we've gotten several states on board. So today, the states of California, uh, New York, Hawaii, Virginia, and Louisiana all have web or mobile applications where you can get these credentials downloaded to your phone and use them wherever you might need them. And another 20 or so states are, are coming on board, uh, along with the provinces of Canada, uh, all sort of within the next couple of weeks. So at this point, I think it's safe to say that about 150 million uh, people have access to these not necessarily have them on their phones, but but do have access. Uh, so could not be more happy with uh, with this progress. Right. Oh my goodness, that's an amazing amount of work in a short period of time. Then to like, contact eight hundred different organizations and get them on board and lobby the states. I'm impressed with the number of states because it feels like initially the political territory in some of the states would make that tricky. So there must be some areas that you feel like you're probably not going to get eventual buy-in, or do you really feel like this will eventually be something that's perhaps across the United States and maybe even globally? Yeah, it's hard to say. So I think that we can all imagine that there are a few states where this is going to be a real challenge. Uh, but I can say that even in a couple of those states where you wouldn't expect that a COVID vaccine credential uh, would be you know, handed out to citizens, uh, what we are seeing is an interest in providing individuals with access to all of their vaccine records. So if you think about use cases of trying to go to college, parents trying to get kids into new schools or go to summer camps. Proof of vaccination is something that we've had to do for a long time, and it's a real pain, especially if you've moved across state lines. And so there's recognition that this is important, even in places where proof of COVID vaccine is maybe not something that we want to do. Uh, we, we are seeing movement. So I think that it's possible, particularly after some of the political headwinds against COVID vaccination die down, uh, that we'll see this adopted by all 50 states but it will certainly take time. Right. That's awesome. So let's talk a little bit about your entrepreneurial interests and these the career interest in health and healthy behaviors. How did that establish or evolve during your life? And why do you think that's something that you end up really focused on? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I mean, I'm so the first part of that answer is that I've always been sort of an opportunistic uh, career person, opportunistic in the sense that I'm more interested in you know working on problems that I find challenging or exciting and particularly doing that with people that I like and find compelling. And so I've definitely meandered a little bit over the course of my career. But generally speaking, 
uh, I have had sort of a, a consistent path going from starting out working on, you know, bigger data kinds of problems, tools for researchers, analytical kind of stuff, consistently moving towards things that are closer to people, you know, actually getting tools and services into people's hands that make their lives easier or better. Um, I come from a background in, in health and health data and the hard sciences and health behavior and this sort of consumer health area that I work in as a place where there's opportunity to make really big impact. You know, we have so many societal health problems uh, and behavior and, you know, sort of consumer attitudes, things along those lines uh, are at the core for so many of them. And we have so little idea how to address uh, many of these kinds of problems. And so for someone like me who has the science background to understand uh, enough about the health issues and the science and the biology, but no clinical training of, of any kind, uh, this is a domain in which you know, I feel like I can actually make some impact. I always ask this question because I think this podcast is all about entrepreneurship. And I often think that students are one of the people that I hope that we're reaching with these stories. And they always, I think, wonder, like, how do you become an entrepreneur rather than like someone who works at a big company or even not a big company, but any kind of company? Why do you think you became an entrepreneur rather than doing some other kind of career? Yeah, a few few different things. So one, during my time at Cornell, of which there have been a few stints, uh, undergrad, and then after some real world time going back and, and doing my PhD, uh, a lot of the time that was spent uh, with my, my advisor, Jerry Gay, we were constantly brainstorming new ideas, finding cool new collaborative projects with people across campus, bootstrapping those project ideas and building things, which to me is a pretty good template uh, for, for starting companies and bringing products into the market. Uh, Another thing I I think that's been important, particularly about my Cornell experience, has been there's a real environment of cross-disciplinary collaboration. uh, And that sort of collaboration, you know, sort of technologists finding physicists or doctors or whoever and going and working with them, I think really spurned new ideas uh, pretty frequently. And that mindset of finding new and interesting areas to work is typically easier at a startup than, uh, than in big companies. And then, of course, there's the personal stuff. I, like many entrepreneurs, I imagine, have some of those headstrong characteristics, which make us uh, less likely to be employed by other folks than by ourselves. But, you know, a lot of it for me comes down to, I think that I'm not always interested in working in the kinds of problems that a lot of bigger companies are trying to solve. I'm you know, more interested in trying to solve hard problems that I think are important and that I hope other people find are important. And typically get pretty frustrated when I think the business cases and things along those lines are getting in the way. So, you know, that certainly led to some startups that have not been so successful. But uh, I think in general, uh, we're doing some good things. Right. And that's, I think that's part of the risk you need to accept if you want to be an entrepreneur is that it's okay to have several projects that aren't successful. And that's it's actually a good thing because you're learning a lot from those things as well. I wondered if you ever had a thought that you, when you start a company, you know, I'm going to work on this problem that I think is a really hard problem. And then I'm, you know, I may not going to solve it, but I'm really going to work and do something that I think is really important. And then after a while, I'm going to kind of get tired of that and want to do something else. I mean, you've focused on health, but you've done a lot of different things. Do you feel like you are someone who wants to kind of start a lot of different things? Do you feel like that's most entrepreneurs feel that way? Or are there like one area that you feel like you could stick in for a long time? Yeah, I definitely have that bug of, of starting lots of projects, hopefully not too many concurrently, although you can see from uh, <laughs> the, the uh, intro that you gave that uh, I'm not doing so well with limiting things concurrently at the moment. But I think that is a very consistent entrepreneurial trait, wanting to start new things, wanting to build them and get, off, get them off the ground. 
But then once you feel that you've sort of gotten it to that steady state, if it ever gets to such a thing, uh, maybe it's time to, to move on and, and experience the, the excitement of starting something new again. Uh, for me, I've definitely had that feel like I have stayed fairly consistently within you know, sort of a, a lane of trying to build things that are helpful for people, uh, either for their health or making their lives or their jobs easier. That particular lane, the problems that I like to solve typically uh, fall within that. And I would say that I rarely feel like, okay, it's really time for me to move on and do something else. It's more about, uh, you know, what I said a bit earlier, just in terms of finding new compelling problems to work on, uh, you know, great people that are working on a challenging problem and, you know, are willing to put up with me uh, to help them solve it uh, is, is typically what motivates me to, to find something new. Well, we love the fact that you have all these different Cornell connections, because I think that's really interesting that you've merged the Cornell Tech while Cornell, you have an undercut experience. What do you think is most exciting about having, you mentioned all the interdisciplinary people that you work with, I guess, how challenging is it to manage all those relationships? How how big a deal is it to have those relationships as an entrepreneur? And how exciting is it to have all those people with different ideas working together? And what are some ways to make that really work instead of being a lot of different opinions? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, for me, those relationships and the cross-campus, cross-disciplinary collaborations, working with people from all sorts of different backgrounds is everything. I think that's the only way you solve really big, really hard problems uh, is by getting together people with wildly different perspectives and backgrounds uh, who all possess, you know, sort of unique but equally important keys to working on, on these hard problems. Uh, but it definitely comes with all kinds of challenges. Uh, in the academic side of things, from a research perspective, uh, one of the challenges that we always faced is you may be working on a problem that you know sits between technology and medicine, right? And the computer scientists have a very particular and narrow set of things that they find interesting from a publication perspective. Uh, the clinicians certainly have narrow sets of things that they find interesting. And the work in the middle tends to not fit anywhere. And so we have real challenges in getting that sort of work started because it's hard to get funded because people are concerned about their publication records and things along those lines. Uh, one of the, the aspects uh, of Cornell Tech that has been exciting is there's sort of equal emphasis on getting things started and building things and being impactful and the research side of things. So I think that that's really important. And that carries through not just in academia, but also uh, in various business endeavors, right? There are numerous challenges in trying to bring things like health tech products into the market when you're trying to pitch investors or foundations for support. And often you're pitching to one sector or the other and being able to make those pitches and have outcomes in your business, especially early on that meet the requirements or you know meet the, the keys for success for each of the different kinds of constituents in those domains is, is really challenging. When you think about your life, do you, or these days anyway, do you have a personal mission statement that you think about when you think about what you stand for? Uh, yeah, not so much. I think for me, if uh, you ask me what I'm working on, you know, right now, the answer is pretty clear. I'm pretty focused on helping people get access to their health data and giving them ways to make it really impactful for them. Generally speaking, I think that's not a bad mission statement, and I can see working on that for a while. But, you know, ask me in a couple of years, and it's probably going to be something different. Can you talk a bit about any tools you use in any of your different positions, either as an uh, entrepreneur or as a researcher, that you found really helpful, either digital tools or physical tools? Yeah, uh, not so much. I seem to sit in front of my computer all the time, all day now, uh, certainly even more so in, in the pandemic than in the past. 
one thing that has been a particular pain point for me of late has been calendaring. I found a pretty cool app that was recommended to me by a couple of different friends called VimCal uh, on the Google calendaring side, which just has tons of shortcuts and makes it super fast to get through all the various calendar scheduling and and whatnot. The particular feature that is absolutely the most helpful to me is you can sort of go on the calendar and highlight your free areas and immediately turn that into these are the times that I'm available to send to people, which has been prior to this was one of the banes of my existence trying to (laughs) navigate which little slots are free for which people in which time zones. So that's been super helpful for me. Um, Anything that makes my ridiculous calendaring a little bit less ridiculous is is always going to be good. Right. Are you finding for this, for the Commons project, that you're ending up doing mostly Zoom calls with people or phone calls? Or I'm sure you're not actually meeting physically with too many people these days. But do you find like the face to Zoom is not really face to face, but that is better for moving things forward than email? We have a a very serious Zoom culture <laughs> at, the, at the Commons Project. And a lot of the people that I work with are, are in the same boat. And particularly in the work that we've been doing with the vaccine credentials, you know, it, it's important that every day that we're talking to people who are located all around the country and now increasingly around the world. Uh, without Zoom, I don't know how we would have gotten most of this stuff done. I've not met some of the people that I spend five or six hours a day with on this project in person before. So it definitely helps to be able to put that face to the name and see facial expressions and, you know, and all of that. Uh, One thing that I have found interesting is just the difference in Zoom versus phone culture in various companies. Coming from a Zoom company, uh, showing up on calls where everybody has their video turned off and you're just sitting there on video is always a little bit jarring, but I'm sure there are really good reasons for us all to stay off video. (laughs) It certainly is a a little bit more relaxing, I think, to to do that. Right. But I do think it's really hard to read people's real feelings about things if you can't see their face. Yeah, completely. And as someone who prior to the pandemic spent tons of time traveling, both for work and personal reasons, this confined to an office and seeing everybody in, you know, little one to four inch squares uh, on the screen definitely feels like it's missing something. But at the same time, you know, at this point, we've demonstrated that you can get a lot done and be highly productive with it as well. But I think that you can compare the difference between like starting a company when you did it, when you could actually go meet people and talk to them and find out about their kids' ages versus like now where you have this very formal, it's not really formal, but a Zoom. Is it much more challenging now? I mean, you've managed to successfully do this during the pandemic, but do you think it makes it a lot different um, in terms of getting things done? Oh, absolutely. We started the Commons Project, five co-founders, three years ago, and we were small and had 13 people around the start of the pandemic, and now we're in the 80s. The majority of our company's growth has happened all during pandemic time. The two interesting aspects to that, so first, it's really easy to hire when you don't care where people live, uh, aside from maybe some time zone challenges. If you don't care where people live, then you don't have requirements about getting to office and things like that. It's been really easy to hire really good people. But the cultural aspect has been really challenging. You know, what is even corporate culture when you've grown from 13 people to 80 some people in the course of a year or so? And most people have never met anyone in person, and our interactions are through these you know, little squares on our screen. I feel like we've done a pretty good job, but we really have no frame of reference. So, right. <laughs> so we'll see where things go. Have you tried to have like happy hours virtually and things like that? Like I know companies try to do these kind of networking things that aren't business related. 
we've definitely had in-person offsites, you know, open air drinks and things like that for the people who are co-located, right? And we, I think we've been lucky enough to have pods of people in different parts of the country who actually can get together. Um, and certainly we've had a, a couple of, you know, leadership offsites and things along those lines. But yeah, I mean, for the most part, the sort of company-wide culture has been regular all-hands meetings and trying to have some semblance of fun Zoom meetings with maximum air quotes uh, around those. Uh, we did a lot more of that in early pandemic times. I think of late, really, we've moved the thinking about culture and relationships between people about just doing a really good job of being respectful of one another and working hard and making sure that everyone is well-situated to get their job done uh, and kind of letting people go do their own thing at the end of the day. I think at this point, uh, we've started to find that work-life balance is probably more important and appreciated than an hour of uh, beers with your work buddies at the end of the day when you've seen them on screen all day. Because you're working long enough hours to get that time off is important. Yeah, that's for sure. So I'd like to move a little bit more into questions about telling us a little bit more how you tick as a person and what kinds of people entrepreneurs are when they aren't working. So I really enjoyed your website because it has all these incredible photos on it and you're really into conservation and a bunch of other areas as well. So I'd love to chat a little bit about how you balance all those things, but also just like how they are important to you in your life. Talk a little bit about like when you get up every morning, like what is it that makes you get up every morning? What are you excited about? I typically wake up in the morning less excited about work than, than one might think. I go to bed thinking about work. And when I wake up in the morning, I, I'm kind of focused on getting out and getting a run and uh, coming back and you know, having a breakfast and catching up on the news and, and things like that. I'm not the most productive of morning people. Uh, so I tend to you know, get my workout in, relax, get some breakfast so that when I actually get around to sitting down to my computer, <laughs> I can be completely focused on, on tasks. But generally speaking, I mean, there are a couple of things that motivate me. You know, what keeps me up at night maybe is a, a better answer than what gets me up in the morning for me. Solving these really hard problems that we're working on, um, this particular challenge of trying to help uh, with vaccination records during the pandemic is just, it's something that's super compelling and it's been so impactful so quickly. Making sure that we get it right for people is, is just so important and, and it's pretty hard to stop thinking about. From a non-work perspective, uh, for me, some of the most important things uh, in, in my life have been travel uh, and new experiences. And that's something that the pandemic has completely shut down. So it's been a, a little bit of a strange uh, period adjusting to that. Uh, but hopefully, uh, with some of the work that we're doing, we can break down some of those walls and uh, get back out there. So when you talk about the impact that your the vaccination records project might have, can you think of like individual stories you've heard of people or health systems or anything that you've heard that's made you realize, oh my goodness, this is so important. I'm so glad that I'm working on this. I'm changing people's lives and making things so much better. Yeah. So when we started the work, the project actually started uh, with lab test results, as I mentioned. The technical work started here, you know, with the collaboration of peers here. Uh, but the real genesis of a lot of the project, particularly things related to cross-border travel, came from uh, a story out of East Africa, particularly truck drivers uh, driving around and delivering goods between the six countries of the East Africa community. So think trucks picking up goods and services at a port in Tanzania and driving it across the border uh, to Rwanda, for example. So those trucks were unable to cross borders until the drivers were cleared with a negative PCR test. And of course, there are hundreds of trucks piling up at the border and PCR tests take 
two to three days to get the results back. And truck drivers were sleeping in their trucks, waiting at borders. Meanwhile, you know, goods were getting destroyed and people weren't getting the supplies that were needed on the other side of borders. This particular problem uh, showed up in, you know, even in the New York Times, but it was really raised to us by uh, we have a, a team in East Africa and, you know, they just couldn't stress how important it was that we try and address this particular problem. And so we worked closely with the East Africa community on building something called EAC Pass, which is, you know, uses the foundational technology that, uh, that we've been working on. And the truck drivers were able to get a PCR test in the city where they were departing. By the time they would get to the border, they would have their negative test results and sort of zoom through. That has been a particularly rewarding project to have worked on. Uh, you know, lots and lots of people getting the copies of their digital vaccination record is rewarding. And I think that the future of this has a, a long tail of benefits that it will provide. But, you know, at the moment, to be realistic, we're getting people back into restaurants and bars and helping them travel across borders and things like that, which is incredibly important for our economy. But it's not a lot of really sort of personal, important feel-good stories. But incredibly important to the economy and to just people's feeling of connection and normalcy and a lot of other things too. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So that was kind of a diversion from the piece of story. <laughs> That's okay. Yeah. I just was really curious about that. Sometimes people have like these, you know, and that East Africa story is a perfect example of these stories of like, this is one specific thing that really I can point to every day that I think, oh my goodness, I've made a big difference. Talk a little bit about if you had like 15 minutes of free time, I imagine your days, as you said, calendar is full of things. What would you do? Yeah, so the kinds of things I like to do in my free time, I like to take photos, uh, as, as you can see on my website. Uh, unfortunately, in, in New York, I'm not a big street photography person or anything like that. So usually I save that for what I'm traveling. I'm a big home cook, so I spend a lot of time making meals. Uh, also hard to do in 15 minutes. But I, I'm actually someone who's fairly decent at managing my uh, time and, and getting a break here and there. The 15-minute breaks I get during the day are usually... I get outside as quickly as I can and try and get some fresh air before getting back on the next Zoom and hopefully get my work done in time to be able to relax a bit in the evening. So what is one thing that most people might be surprised to find out about you, if you would reveal it? <laughs> I am shockingly good at really unimportant sports like badminton and bowling. <laughs> really? Even bowling? Yes. I was a junior bowling champion, which embarrassingly... I ended up quitting the bowling team uh, over peer pressure because my soccer player friends you know, certainly did not find that to be as cool as uh, the soccer that we were playing. I can't say that I regret foregoing my bowling career, but uh, I, I was quite good at it. So you can go out now and pretend like you don't know how to play and then just completely crush everyone. It comes in useful about once every other year when somebody wants to go bowling. It's a, it's a really good parlor trick. That's great. Let's talk about what books you're reading if there are any habits you have that think help you in your business or in your life in general? Yeah, books are a really hard one for me. I have a massive list of books that I can't wait to read. And between the, the sort of long hours on Zoom and the fact that I need to read lots of academic papers and reports and things like that, I am shockingly behind on my book reading. The book reading that I do is now on planes, uh, which is another thing that, uh, that seems to be missing from my life. In terms of habits, two things I would describe that have really served me well in work especially have been really focused on empowering the people around me to do their jobs and give them the space to do it well and letting them do that and making sure that they get all the credit and all the space that they need to, to do really well. 
I'm sort of an anti-micromanager. Part of that is because I'm really lazy with details myself. So letting other people handle those is, uh, is helpful for me personally. But generally speaking, I think that that's, some, that's a habit that served me really well and I think is super important for all businesses, but especially growing ones. Uh, you know, you're, you're hiring great people and great teams and, and making sure that they're, they're doing what they need to do and have the space to do it is, is really important to me. And the other is just a, a random personality quirk. It might be some sort of deficiency in some way, shape, or form. While I certainly stress about things just like anybody else, I definitely find that in the most sort of hectic and stressful situations, finding a couple of ways to stay calm and just sort of dissociate yourself from the problem and focus on a couple of tasks at hand and, and get through them is super helpful. Uh, those are the times when you know, we, we make lots of mistakes and we're tired and, and things go wrong. If you can do anything at all to find ways to just like compartmentalize, set that stuff aside and, and worry about it later, that's, uh, that's been something that's, that's served me pretty well. When you're hiring people, do you have any tricks or any wisdom to share with how you find these people that are going to turn out to be the people who are independent? And are there some certain things that you ask them? Are there certain skills you look for, or traits or resume ticks thing you look for that feel like, oh, that's going to be a good fit? Yeah, I don't have any one particular thing, although I do, based on my personal background, I tend to like people who have moved around uh, a bit more than maybe others do. I think a diversity of experiences, uh, particularly in small businesses, you know, startups and small businesses is pretty demonstrative of that sort of thing. The majors that people had and the types of projects that they work in in school, the types of projects that they highlight from school experiences uh, can be important as well, as well as, you know, just the activities that they do in, in uh, their free time, right? If people have independent have a, a good history of doing things independently. That's always a good sign. But at the same time, there are aspects of, you know, were you an athlete on a team uh, in college, right? There are aspects of, of being a team player on, you know, on collegiate sport teams, things like that, for example, that definitely fit the mold of people who, you know, are, are going to work well within their lane and, and get things done. What did you major in? I can't remember if I know this or not. I think it was called general studies. I studied computer science and genetics uh, when I was an undergrad at Cornell. And then my master's and PhD were in information science. So is there anyone in terms of business that you really admire? I don't really have any sort of classic business leaders fit that mold. Um, there are people that I've spent a lot of time working with, some of which I wouldn't necessarily describe as uh, globally famous, but are at least quite well-respected and famous within their own domains. Deborah Estrin from Cornell Tech uh, has been a mentor to me since she showed up at Cornell Tech and a collaborator uh, as well. And she's someone who has done tremendously good work, super impactful work over the years, but treats everyone as peers and equals, uh, whether they're grad students, uh, master's students, or you know, new faculty members. It's fantastic to work with people who have that mentality, uh, regardless of how successful and accomplished they are. We did a story about our Milstein students who are undergrads who spent the summer at Cornell Tech, and they, they spent a decent amount of time with her, which I thought was really impressive. I thought, wow, she's an incredibly busy person. And they said the same thing that you did. They felt that she was really interested in them and listened to them, and I thought that was awesome. It's really great when people who have leadership roles and faculty positions are able to make that much time for students. You don't see it all the time, and it's incredibly valuable to those students. So my final question is what do you consider your greatest success? You know, you have a, a lot of other successes to make in your life, but at this point in your life, like what, what do you think of as one of your greatest successes? 
I think I'm living through it, which is both great and uh, maybe a little bit uh, <laughs> challenging to think about at the same time. I feel like the work that we're doing right now with, uh, with vaccine credentials, both in terms of being able to contribute to the pandemic response in a way that's actually meaningful and in a way that that's working, right? So many of the things in the pandemic uh, response-wise have just not really panned out or have been a complete mess uh, in terms of rollout. And this has been a success, which makes it feel that much, that much better. But also in terms of the longer-term potential for what we're doing, we feel like this particular technology platform is going to make it possible for people for many years to come to get access to health information and other kinds of information and be able to use that uh, in ways that are important to them and ways that the people they're providing it to can trust explicitly. I do feel like this is extremely important work and definitely the most impactful thing that I've had a chance to work on, thinking about what that means for, you know, the next 20 plus years of career that I hope to have after that is a, a little bit strange and daunting, but uh, you know, definitely enjoying where we're at and working hard to make sure that uh, it keeps growing instead of fizzles out with the pandemic. That's awesome. And how can people find out more about the project and, and how to get involved? Yeah, so the Commons Project, our nonprofit, you can find at uh, thecommonsproject.org. The information about the work for vaccine credentials, the particular format, the QR code that everybody's getting. It's something called a smart health card. And the website is smarthealth.cards. And then this vaccination credential uh, initiative that we started is vci.org. Between those three, you should be able to find uh, good info about all of the stuff that we've been up to. Right. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for spending some time with us. It's been great to talk to you. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's, It's great. So to find out more about entrepreneurship at Cornell and see the show notes from this episode, visit eship.cornell.edu.